sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So as I was hoping to make this a slightly shorter episode, I suppose we should Just cut the chit-chat and get right into it, if you're ready. Me? You mean, is Alex ready? That's the important thing. Yes, and for those who weren't listening last time, that's the name of Mrs. Carswell's bee. Technically, it's Alexander. I just call him Alex. But you can call him that, too. It's just, if there were any paperwork or anything, well, that's his actual name. Okay, uh, so do you want to explain to listeners what's happening, what we're doing? Well, I've trained Alex to do a little trick for the bee circus, and we were going to demonstrate it for listeners. The uh, bee circus came up a couple episodes back when Mrs. Carswell told me about her uncle running a bee circus back in the 60s, and since she keeps bees as has a way with bees, I encourage her to follow in his footsteps, I guess. It's like a flea circus, but with bees. Yes, and there is an audio component to this trick, in case you were wondering how you were going to witness anything. The only thing is we'll have to uh, move to a different room where she's been working with the bees, and I'm just going to be bringing a, a handheld mic, so I apologize in advance for the less professional sound quality. Now we're in the bee room where the training has been going on. There is a large uh, glass box like a terrarium in which Mrs. Carswell's been keeping her bees. Yes. Uh, Why don't you get closer to the mic over here? Okay. Okay. Yes. My indoor bees. The special bees. Most are outside in the hives, of course. Maybe you can uh, hear them buzzing through the glass. They're if singing. If I move a bit closer. They're excited to see you. But I'm set up for Alex over here. Where? See? On the table. Wait, I, I thought he was going to be in a glass box or something, not loose. He has to get used to flying around strangers. Oh, you didn't... I, I didn't there know he's going to... See? To be there. flying. Oh, no. Shh. Not so loud. A bee circus needs room to fly. They can't be boxed in. But look, he's landed right in his circle. Oh, what a good boy. What is that? What are you doing? Approval dance. I thought you were having a stroke. Well, it's a human version. Bees are more elegant. 
You know bees communicate through dances, right? Yes, but... I just told him he did a good job. Are you going to have to do that in the actual circus? It's... it's frightening. Not to him it isn't. You should move in closer. Okay. Uh, let me paint the picture a bit for the listeners. Uh, Alex is on a tabletop in the middle of a circle. Mrs. Carswell appears to have drawn on the table. It'll come off. You have to imagine this as one of the three rings of the circus. Alex is sitting within the circle in front of, uh, I guess, a, a mock-up of the church tower prop? Yes, for now, till the original comes in the mail. Well, for now, we have a, a bookend and a bit of wood standing in for a miniature church tower. But the important thing is the little bell Mrs. Carswell has rigged up at the top. It's a miniature bell tower, and Alex will be our bell ringer. I've taught him to ring the bell Wait, three what, times. That side-to-side thing. Oh. Don't scare him. You can't move suddenly. Sorry. I had no idea you had such a phobia of bees. Wait. Yes, he's begun. It's happening. Alex is climbing up the bell tower slowly, but with determination. He's he's pausing. He's he's touching the thread, the bell pull. Shh! You're distracting him. Oh, are you? What are you? Ah, I really, I really can't describe it, but the dance. Do you want to try it yourself? No, but I, I approve. Tell him that. Great job. I'm, I'm going back to the library now. Okay. Uh, so I, uh, I felt we uh, needed our familiar clock to introduce the show, as is our tradition. And uh, so, uh, this is episode 72, Ashtar, Orthon, and the Rosicrucians. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, generally examines the intertwining of horror and folklore... Um, again, this time it's a bit more science fiction and occultism, which in our last show meant uh, 19th century uh, theosophy appearing in the uh, messages of the contactees of the uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, within the contactee movement, there were four important Georges. George King, discussed in our last show, George Van Tassel, George Adamski, both of whom we'll be examining this time, and George Hunt Williamson, who we'll get a little shout out to. Theosophy itself was influenced by Rosicrucianism, so we'll be bringing it full circle back to that toward the end. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes, and I'll have more on Patreon at the end of our show. This is George Van Tassel, a strange man with a strange mission. George lives in the shade of Giant Rock, the biggest boulder in the world. 
Giant Rock Interplanetary Airport. Sources and aircraft welcome. Our second George, an American by the name of Van Tassel, diverges from the uh, theosophical program described in our last show in certain ways. Uh, he omits the uh, theosophical obsession with uh, Eastern masters and religious practices, but he retains other aspects, including channeled communications with uh, distant or cosmic masters, as well as a belief in a sort of higher science capable of manipulating hitherto unknown energies. After some experience working at a small airport in Ohio, at the age of 20, Van Tassel moved to Los Angeles and soon found employment at Lockheed and Hughes Aircraft as a mechanic and flight inspector. He spent the next 16 years working in aviation until, in 1947, an opportunity arose to manage a tiny airport in the desert. Giant Rock Airport was really little more than an airstrip next to the uh, landmark boulder it's named for, and Van Tassel moved his family into uh, equally rudimentary accommodations, uh, actually a uh, 400 square foot uh, space previously dug under the boulder and previously supposedly occupied by a German spy, but uh, that's another story for the uh, Patreon blog, I suppose. Van Tassel's wife, Ava, opened a cafe in a dolled-up shanty leaning against the boulder. By the second year of his life at Giant Rock, Van Tassel had begun his journey to the outer limits, establishing something he called the Brotherhood of the Cosmic Christ, whose members gathered weekly in the den under the boulder. There, they took part in group meditation, but emphasis seems to have been on Van Tassel, who had begun channeling messages from beyond. From somewhere, he identified as the Golden Density, a term later explained in a 1968 edition of a newsletter he published. I seem to enter into an area of golden mist. Within this golden density, which seems to be boundless, I hear a soft, resonant voice speaking these words. As I hear the words, they are either taken down in shorthand or taped, as I repeat aloud what I hear. Everyone seems to think this sounds like God speaking in first person. Possibly so. I can only tell you how I receive the words and record them. By 1952, the intelligence's contacted had become explicitly extraterrestrial, coming from beings who are often said to be orbiting our planet or stationed nearby in immense craft and organized into an intergalactic federation called the Council of the Seven Lights. Many such uh, transmissions, as they were called, were recorded, sometimes at odd speeds, accounting for the shift in Van Tassel's pitch you'll hear in these transmission recordings. From, from the WQ9 convoy, I am Paul. Brothers, the message to be relayed to you next is of great importance. Greetings from the station I'll turn. I am Colonel Two. 
Eager to emphasize the technological aspect of this project, Van Tassel later identified particular devices involved in these transmissions. By 1952, Van Tassel had published a booklet, somewhat misleadingly titled, I Rode in a Flying Saucer, a uh, claim revealed to have only been a visionary experience on the astral plane. But by the next year, Van Tassel had come up with something more attention-grabbing. On an August night, the 24th, he and his wife were sleeping outside thanks to the desert heat. At about 2 a.m., Van Tassel woke with a start to find a person standing six feet from the bed. His first thought was that it was a stranger seeking help for a car broken down on the nearby road, but the stranger had arrived in silence, somehow not disturbing the dogs that always barked when visitors approached the property. And then the man spoke. My name is Sorganda. I would be pleased to show you our craft. And, wouldn't you know it, Solganda was from Venus. This he communicates telepathically. We know very little about his appearance other than his height, estimated at 5'7", and the fact that he's prone to benevolent smiles. The vehicle, it turns out, is a smaller scout ship, very much conforming to the stereotypical flying saucer model. It appears to emit some sort of energy which makes Van Tassel's hair stand on end and causes slight nausea as he approaches. The description of the interior is not terribly interesting. There are, however, some curious details mentioned in his 1960 interview on Long John Nebel's contactee-friendly late-night radio show, Party Line, out of New York. What was it like? What happened? Well, the interior walls were uh, what looked like a mother-of-pearl plastic like we put on toilet seats and for uh, decoration. The light inside seemed to come from everywhere. And laundry facilities are detailed. And they had a compartment in the wall which uh, both cleans and deodorizes their clothes uh, by some light process, which uh, required no water, soap, or detergents, or a washing machine. Though Van Tassel does not seem to have made a habit of in-person encounters with space people, his transmissions from them continued unabated into the 1970s. Literally dozens of strangely named entities were contacted. Elkar, Lutboon, Lax, Pritla, there's no vowel in that first syllable, Newt, and Vela. But the most prominent eventually came to be Astar. 
Astar is an interesting case. Already in the 1950s, one of Van Tassel's followers, Robert Short, broke from his group and began channeling Astar himself, forming a group called Astar Command. Contactees of Astar proliferated throughout the following decades, and he continues to this day to speak through multiple channelers. Van Tassel's Astar was very much associated with warnings of planetary disaster in the face of man's reckless experiments with the atom or other failings, which Astar would detail. In line with George King from our last episode, Van Tassel's Astar describes Earth's inhabitants as descending from space people. However, he makes little or no explicit use of the theosophical myths of Atlantis or Lemuria, preferring instead biblical stories. Uh, idiosyncratically reinterpreted. On a number of occasions, Van Tassel penned letters to governmental agencies or authorities to convey Astar's warnings, all of which were naturally ignored and led to Van Tassel's later communications becoming rather prickly. Our astronomers know what they are. Our top government officials all over the earth know what they are. know that today I am considered a crackpot, and tomorrow maybe something else. Whether or not Van Tassel failed to sway the U.S. government, he succeeded in creating a tremendous platform not only for his beliefs, but for those of the evolving community of contactees in hosting the Giant Rock Spacecraft Convention annually from 1953 to 1977. The convention was a free two-day event drawing the glitterati of the saucer crowd as speakers. Their lectures were delivered from a small wooden tower erected against the boulder. Attendees brought their own seating for the talks and tents or campers for nights spent under the desert stars. They came from all over the U.S. and some from abroad, more than a few arriving in planes making use of the giant rock airstrip. The event probably peaked in 1959 with as many as 10,000 people in attendance. Articles previewing the 1961 convention promised an air show, movies at night, radio and TV personalities, and a Sunday afternoon show with Cliff Winters and other movie stunt people. A 1961 photo spread in Life magazine highlighted the sideshow atmosphere of the convention depicting one vendor selling recordings of UFO songs and another offering neckties featuring flying saucers and the slogan We come in peace. The humble cafe opened by Ava Van Tassel when the couple arrived in the desert seems to have uh, gotten a boost from the conventions. The walls were now wallpapered with photos of flying saucers and related memorabilia and by 1962, the Van Tassels were taking out ads in the local paper, the High Desert Star, promising, Out of this world, steaks and chops. Joe Latella at the organ every Saturday night, 6 to 11 p.m. Sunday, 4 to 9 p.m. Giant Rock Airport Restaurant, Flying Saucer Headquarters. While the Giant Rock Restaurant is long gone, Another memorial to Van Tassel's obsessions can still be seen not far from the giant boulder. 
This white two-story dome structure, looking something like an observatory, is a project begun by Van Tassel in 1957 and still incomplete at the time of his death in 1978. It's called the Integratron, and the construction of its dome from strictly all wood or non-magnetic materials is supposed to have been an element of designs channeled directly from the Cosmic Masters. As with George King's spirit batteries collecting the energy emanating from a room of devotees in prayer, Van Tessel's Integratron is another example of the theosophical notion of a sort of science that transcends science, a technology that manipulates hitherto unknown energies. While usually crediting the space people for the designs from which he worked, Van Tassel also hinted that his plans owed something to the work of Tesla and that the Integratron would function as some sort of electrostatic generator. It sometimes suggested that the ring of 64 protruding rods around the outside, now apparently fixed, had been intended to spin in an effort to generate or capture this sort of energy. Some of these unknowns have to do with the current structure existing only as an outer shell. At the time of Van Tassel's death, any machinery within the Integratron, along with specific engineering notes, were said to have been stolen or mysteriously disappeared. Skeptics might ask whether any such things actually ever existed, as Van Tassel's commentary on the project tended to be rather simplistic or vague, and at times contradictory, even when it came to the purpose of the Integratron. Typically, he would describe it as a rejuvenation machine. This is uh, basic research uh, on a principle by demonstration that uh, we can charge people like batteries. Now, of course, this sounds more fantastic than space people. And uh, the tooling, the jigs are finished, and uh, measurements uh, by the thousands, which nobody can understand. The original principle, the original theory. However, he also at times referred to the Integratron as a time machine in ways that don't seem to be uh, metaphorical references to human rejuvenation. The Integratron was also supposed to be self-powered, relying on some unknown and perpetual source of energy, possibly having to do with planetary magnetism, um, ley lines, uh, sacred geometry, the pyramids, etc. But we'll never know until those plans turn up, so we need to get going on that. You're not trying to tell me you really believe there's a flying saucer. Here is the dramatic story that rips aside the veil of secrecy surrounding the momentous question of the century. Are the flying saucers real? Our final George, being George Adamski, was the first and therefore perhaps the most impactful of the group. His connection to historic occult teachings is central to his uh, pre-contactee existence, and while he didn't engineer any devices suggestive of Theosophy's uh, higher science, he made great efforts to associate himself with traditional science, namely astronomy, perhaps in an, an effort to uh, distract from his uh, pre-contactee occultism. Born in Poland, Adamski arrived with his parents in the U.S. at the age of two, he worked a number of odd jobs uh, in a flour mill in Oregon and on a maintenance crew at Yellowstone National Park, but uh, somewhere along the line, he produced a booklet published in 1932 called The Invisible Ocean, 
a sort of vague treatise comparing the cosmos to a, a sort of a living sea of consciousness from which various life forms evolve. By 1933, it had attracted the attention of a Southern California socialite, Maud Johnson, who ran an obscure theosophically oriented group in Laguna Beach, which is soon transformed into something called the Royal Order of Tibet. Adamski shifts gears and, according to newspaper ads from 1933, begins offering lectures as Professor Adamski, a missionary from Tibet. By April 1934, the Los Angeles Times was reporting on Johnson purchasing a 17-room mansion to house the order. In the article, Adamski's background is exotically reimagined. As a child, he lived in the ancient monasteries in Tibet and learned the law of the Lamas. His father was Polish, his mother an Egyptian. The author rather archly describes plans for a lamasery where feminine neophytes in flowering purple will wander through Elysian gardens. Men in golden garments with purple collars will endeavor to achieve the blissful mastery of self. Somehow this does not come to pass. By the next year, the property's been sold to yet another group of mystics, but Adamski gloms onto this organization and retains a somewhat diminished position. Still, for the next six years, lecturing and penning small chapbooks as a representative of the Royal Order of Tibet. In 1940, Adamski briefly moves to an old ranch that he tells the press he will be converting to a spiritual retreat. But a few months later, he's relocated to the foot of Mount Palomar, where a student of his, Alice Wells, has purchased land which has turned into a campground called Palomar Gardens. And Adamski's wife opens a small diner there, a Palomar Gardens Cafe that becomes a sort of headquarters for Adamski. By this point, he's begun writing a science fiction novel called Pioneers of Space and receives from another benefactor a 15-inch telescope which he houses in a tiny observatory of his own construction. When visitors pass through on their way to the famous Mount Palomar Observatory, they sometimes mistake Adamski as a researcher from that institution, an impression he only corrects if absolutely forced to. Two little men in a flying saucer flew down to earth one day. In 1947, after Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting of the flying discs dubbed flying saucers, in the heat of saucer mania, Adamski produces some photos of a cylindrical mothership, and in 1950, more photos of UFOs supposedly flying in formation. Well, well and good, but it still doesn't bring him the attention he craves. For that, he will need a face-to-face encounter with a spaceman. Thankfully, this need was answered on November 20th, 1952, coincidentally a day Adamski and six of his followers had planned a saucer-spotting excursion. Among them, Adamski's benefactor Alice Wells, his secretary and presumed ghostwriter Lucy McGinnis, and future saucerology author and one of our Georges, George Hunt Williamson. While the group's car caravan had pulled over for a roadside lunch, a silvery submarine-shaped craft appeared in the sky, then disappeared behind some hills. Adamski explained to the group that this is an invitation to a rendezvous with the spacemen in the nearby hills. 
Curiously, the others were willing to stay behind and witness this meeting only from a distance, or not at all, depending on the testimonies. In any case, uh, Damsky finds a smaller scout ship had landed, and a man emerges. I wonder if you could uh, describe this man in detail to us. Yeah, a uh, man about a five foot uh, uh, seven to eight uh, inches, and I would say around uh, 135 pounds of, of quite delicate hands, uh, tapered fingers, and... Uh, beautiful, uh, very sharp eyes looked like they looked right through you. Sometimes you couldn't hardly tell whether he was really a man or a woman. And uh, his long hair waving, uh, resting on his shoulders, he uh, kind of a, a halfway smile and uh, put his hand out to shake. And it was a palm-to-palm contact that way, and he smiled. This is from a 1960 interview with the wonderful Long John Neville again, who here displays his gift for eliciting the strangest details from those he interviews. Did he tell you that he was a man? Uh, he did, but even then I was a little bit doubtful, but you know, when nature calls, the nature calls in that way. <laughs> we established that. Well, we got over that. <laughs> I'll link to the uh, Neville interviews in my show notes, by the way. Now, as you would have guessed, this alien turns out to be from Venus. Uh, his name is Orthon, and naturally he wants to warn mankind about the dangers of nuclear war and scold humanity for spiritual ignorance and those sorts of failings. It's all communicated telepathically and set down in Adamski's 1953 book, The Flying Saucers Have Landed. Orthon's sermonizing and details regarding his life in outer space seem to be borrowed from Adamski's earlier novel, Pioneers in Space. But the flying saucers have landed, sold quite well, with one of its main draws being the photos, the most famous of which was taken a few weeks after Adamski's meeting with Orthon, supposedly documenting a flyover Orthon had arranged for his new Earth friend. And this is the iconic photo of the bell-shaped craft that you may have seen. looks more like an industrial lampshade than a saucer in this case. There's been uh, plenty of ink spilled by those who've discovered this or that prop Adamski surely photographed as his model, uh, the top of a camping lantern, a chicken brooder, and so forth. But all that gets wearisome, and I assume from what I've already discussed, listeners wouldn't really need further reason to be wary of Adamski's assertions. Um, additional messaging from Orthon was provided in a particularly bizarre way, namely the footprints he left behind in the desert. The tread of his footwear, Adamski said, was encoded with symbols merely requiring interpretation. George Hunt Williamson, who had some background in anthropology, knew to take plaster castings of the prints and got a whole book out of interpreting the designs, or at least a significant part, of his uh, 1953 publication, Other Tongues, Other Flesh. Adamski went on to publish another book, 1955's Inside the Spaceships, and retained his importance in the contactee movement for quite some time, though his increasingly outrageous claims drew growing criticism not only from the mainstream, but from those more serious-minded UFO investigators eager to see their 
community uh, shed the baggage of the past, of the contactees. And it was quite a bag of trickery the contactees carried. I've tried not to obsess over intentionally deceitful aspects, but even if there were genuine visionary experiences, uh, something sincerely believed, there also was surely an element of intentional fraudulence. Rumors circulating in the UFO community, however, offer a somewhat more charitable take on things when it comes to Adamski. There were reports that he confessed to those close to him that his saucer stories may be pure bunk, but that he told them in the service of a higher truth, moral teachings he actually believed in. So, trickery, yes, but for a higher cause. I'm going to take a strange turn now, but it will all come back around as we wrap up. We're going to talk briefly about a similar kind of trickery from the 17th century, one related to the idea of cosmic masters and to theosophy. Between 1614 and 1617, some peculiar anonymous manuscripts appeared in Germany, generating quite a buzz amid the learned classes. The first was the fame of the Brotherhood of R.C., and then the confessions of the Brotherhood of R.C., and then the chemical wedding of Christian Rosicross, the last explaining the initials in the first two, R.C. for Rosicross, and um, chemical here, meaning alchemical. It was a, a symbolic wedding or union. The uh, Rosy Cross or Rosicrucian manuscripts hinted that a hitherto unknown body of knowledge, an amalgam of alchemy, hermeticism, Christian mysticism, and Kabbalah, had been gathered by the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross inspired by a 14th century seeker named Christian Rosenkreutz, uh, German for Rose or Rosy Cross. Rosenkreuz supposedly had founded the Society of Adepts with the intention that their knowledge would be directed toward the healing of mankind's ills. Despite the fact that no one could locate any evidence for such a society or could identify a single member, the elites eagerly embraced the idea, no less so when already in 1616, the scholar and Lutheran theologian Johann Valentin André declared the whole thing a ludibrium, uh, that is Latin for a game or a joke. It's quite likely that André himself was the writer behind the hoax, trying to disown it as he saw it taken a life he hadn't expected, with dozens of scholars writing about or posing as Rosicrucian sages. This snowball effect that he, probably Andre, had tricked into existence became known as the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, and it saw the invisible college mentioned in uh, these documents emulated in real-world scholarly organizations like England's Royal Society, founded in 1660. Then the long history of Freemasonry, too, was inspired by the Rosicrucian myth of a secret society with degreed initiations. Though the drama had pretty much died down by the 19th century, we can pick up this uh, life-imitating art thread, or something like it, in 1842. This was the publication date for a novel called Zanoni by the English author Edward Bulwer-Lytton, whom I believe I've mentioned before as an influence on Gothic literature. 
the titular Zanoni, is a Rosicrucian magician living during the French Revolution who must choose between a romantic love and his occult abilities, which seem to be significant as he was born centuries and centuries ago in ancient Chaldea. Theosophy's leading light, Helena Blavatsky, commented on this curious figure. No author in the world of literature ever gave a more truthful or more poetical description of these beings than Sir E. Bulwer-Lytton, the author of Zanoni. Of course, these beings she was talking about were her ageless Mahatmas, the masters of ancient wisdom, which to those outside the uh, theosophical worldview were, of course, no more and no less real than Bulwer-Lytton's Zanoni. And to be fair, the author employs a tried-and-true device of Gothic literature, a uh, frame story claiming his tale was the result of his research into the actual history of Rosicrucianism, writing in the third person but also identifying himself as Zanoni's author. Bulwer-Lytton claimed that the story was inspired when a manuscript came into his hands written in the most unintelligible cipher. Blavatsky didn't need Bulwer-Lytton to introduce her to the Rosicrucian ideas borrowed into her theosophical teachings, uh, namely the synthesis of disparate religious and mystical traditions, and more particularly the idea of a secret society of masters protecting and guiding humanity. But scholars of Blavatsky generally agree that Bulwer-Lytton did contribute something to her uh, story of Atlantis. If you haven't heard our previous episode, Blavatsky conceived the Atlanteans as a race that preceded our current human race and had created technologies beyond our current scope, but destroyed themselves through these same technologies and their moral failings. So, uh, true to our uh, alleged facts imitating fictions theme, Blavatsky's Atlantean myth happens to come from a science fiction novel, the uh, perfect genre to bring us full circle back to our contactees and their own sci-fi flavored storytelling. The science fiction novel in question is Bulwer-Lytton's 1871 novel, The Coming Race, which involves the discovery by a mining engineer of an underground society living in a city reminiscent of ancient Egypt. It's populated by a race called the Vrilya. Communicating telepathically, they relate to their visitor how they fled Earth's surface before the biblical flood, but like the Atlanteans, their ancient race has created a sort of advanced spiritual technology, making use of a subtle, all-pervasive energy known as the Vril, V-R-I-L. In The Secret Doctrine, Blavatsky specifically equates the novel's Vril with Mashmak, the name she'd assigned to the power used by the Atlanteans to drive their advanced technological creations, including airships used in war. Regarding this power, she says, It is the vril of Bulwer-Lytton's coming race, and of the coming races of our mankind. The name vril may be a fiction. The force itself is a fact. The name and concept of the Vril has been widely embraced by later occult writers and figures into myth-making about a supposed Vril society in Nazi Germany, but that's another tale for another time. Uh, I just mention it here to illustrate the uh, porosity of the uh, boundary between fiction and the visionary 
teachings of theosophy and the contactees. I'm sure the Vril would have excited Van Tassel's imagination, for instance. Maybe he would have gotten the Integratron going if he'd known about it. To end our episode, I want to return briefly to the Rosicrucians and perhaps clear something up. I imagine when a lot of listeners hear that word, particularly here in America, they don't think of 18th century tracts about Christian Rosenkreuz, but of ads in the backs of old magazines. If you've ever flipped through magazines from the 1940s and 50s, you've seen these full-page display ads with their melodramatic illustrations and headlines like, What strange cosmic power influences humans. Mental poisoning, thoughts that enslave minds. Somewhere out there are other minds. Are you a robot? These were created by a uniquely American Rosicrucian body headquartered in California called AMARC, A-M-O-R-C, an acronym for the Ancient Mystical Order of Rosicrucis, the Rosicross. Well, actually, not all that ancient, as it only came into existence in 1915. It was the brainchild of Herbert Spencer Lewis, who had himself previously worked in advertising and was keenly aware of the potential of mass media to promote his project. Amark was one of several groups, the most prominent and long-lived, to uh, pick up the slippery concept of Enlightenment-era Rosicrucianism and then repackage it with uh, a particular slant. In Lewis's case, that slant would involve ancient Egypt. Um, some listeners, those in California particularly, would be aware of this thanks to the Rosicrucian Museum in San Jose, which uh, hosts an extensive collection of ancient Egyptian artifacts in an Egyptian revival building. Rosicrucian Park was not only home to the museum Lewis founded in 1929, but also a radio studio and tower. Lewis was a pioneer in the use of that medium, making early use of the talk show format and also running a children's radio show, all with Rosicrucian themes, of course. Lewis's lectures or radio talks, along with some uh, musty symphonic uh, meditation music, were committed to phonograph recordings in the 1960s and 70s, often released on colored vinyl, uh, which is why I'm bringing all of this up, the uh, Amarks version of Rosicrucianism. I thought I'd close the show with a short montage, briefly sampling these discs, including one particular gem, very soothing one, children's record, intended to prepare Rosicrucian offspring for bed. So, uh, I guess this is my way of bidding you all, for now, good night. It is time for bed, but first, let us go to the window and look way up into the sky. Look out the window. Look way up into the sky. Would you like to go way out into this universe where the stars and the moon are? Close your eyes tight. Now think of going way, way up into the sky 
where all the little balls of light, the stars, are floating about. Now it is time for bed. Think about what you want to tell the people in the sky tomorrow night. Think of all the good things, the pretty flowers, the little birds that sing in the trees, your little friends, the boys and girls you play with. You must like pretty things. The sky is blue and pretty. The little fluffy white clouds are pretty. You have pretty picture books. Pretty things are nice. Look for things that are pretty. Draw pretty pictures. Sing pretty songs. Remember, be kind. Do what we tell you. Love pretty things. So mote it be. Now climb into bed, and good night. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show, and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends, or even better, to leave a review wherever you listen. Those really help us. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Pledged commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode in the uh, marvelous and rare format. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, posting extra tidbits that almost made it into our episodes, uh, downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the Bonesicle Candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. We uh, may be bringing back uh, Patreon t-shirts in the next uh, months also. We have a few new patrons since recording the previous episode a few days ago. Many thanks to Rachel P., Jameson G., Heather Carlson, and Jack Zients of JewishMonsterHunting.com, a uh, highly recommended site. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>